it's like you know when you you're in school and you read I don't know if you but we were forced to read Chaucer and it's like ooh that's a bit saucy uh, and then you hear it in different. we did the wife of Bath and she was a saucy one. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest this evening is Julianne Reagan. Thank you very much. It's lovely to meet you for the first time because we, we we we've probably like brushed shoulders on many a magazine back in the day. Yeah, we yes. I mean, I think in print we probably did. I was just looking through some old like sounds and ah, the one that got me. I know what it was making music. Oh, that was always free in in music shops, wasn't it? You could pick up a packet of strings and a, and a copy of making music yep you could get it free when you went into the rehearsal room and they did the best photo shoot i don't know who that they use but i'm i've got mine somewhere in a suitcase under some bed <laughs> and um, i have somewhere and mm. but i think wow that's the best photograph of any of the photographs i ever had taken probably i, I think it was i don't know there was there's one thing about it they got you very relaxed as in it felt very casual yeah there was never kind of a, a whole um, coterie of, of makeup artists no. and stylists or anything. It was just right. a. It was usually a couple of blokes. One talked and one took photos. Simpler time. And they talked about the album you'd just done or the songs you're just about to record mm. and the instrument you had in front of you. My, yeah. You know, the br- the brown drum kit, not really yeah. of any description. Just yeah. And we and I remember talking about all kinds of lovely things and. But there was there was no agenda. It was no like, no. what's a secret, you know? Yeah. No. Am I imagining that there was a magazine called Disco Forty Five? Oh no, there was one, and it had uh, it had lyrics. Yes. In yes. it, I can remember being sat in the back of the car on you know one of those "Are We Nearly There Yet?" Dad drives, and singing "Starman" out of yeah. the back of Disco Forty Five. Yeah. Wow. See, because on on the topic of great photographs, well, I think that was my favourite photograph of me. Like we had. The three of us on the front cover, and I was standing at the front, and I looked, I looked right, I looked really yeah. right this time, and it was like, <laughs> but why was it on the cover of Disco Forty Five? You know, I would have preferred it on something else, but you know. didn't it have? I bet the Forty Five was written in like different shades of orange, going round in like like yes. parallel lines that followed the shape of the numerals. Yes, yeah, you know, like Top Gear, or <laughs> and Top of the Pops had that as well. You know, where they yeah. like. Lines of colour that followed each other round like toothpaste out of a tube. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I'm seeing that graphic design right now, actually, yeah. There was, there was I think there was Disco 45 and another one called Something Smash Really Imagined. There was Smash Hits. Smash there was hits. another Lyric magazine. Yeah. It was the days of Lyric magazines, you know. Uh, wasn't it called Song Words or something like that? Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, it's song it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I, I we bought that. I bought that religiously because it was like the only way you could figure out what Mark Boland was up to. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and they they were glossy. They were fairly glossy as well. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Like front cover and things. 
can't remember. Uh, I don't remember. Not sure. I'm might have been, might have been glossy and crawling. Didn't make it to the <laughs> northwest of England, though. Well, but it wasn't black and white, is what I mean. It was it was a colour bank, right? Oh, I think, I, oh, yeah, I think it was colour, but I think, you know, I don't know about the north. It was probably more grim, but in the middle... It was definitely like, grim. It was like, you know, rough book paper. Yeah, even the tabloids, there was no red on the tabloids up north. Really? No, just, no, there were black and really? white up there. The colour drained oh, out of everything, okay. lol, you know. The colour just... Sorry. It sucked the colour out of everything. Anything that had life in it, get towards Liverpool, suck the colour out, suck the life out of it. Blimey. So, so it's true. It was grim up north. It was really grim. Yeah, but we. Yeah, but you had, you had red pavements, didn't you? Red pavements. They were made of gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were like red tarmac. Though. There was one or two cobblestones, yeah. you know, that looked right. a bit like they were made. Actually, it was made from the glass factory nearby. Right. Oh. Uh, there were fairies there. We had a lot of fairies. Mm. There was this stuff that came from the kilns and the glass factory, and you'd find oh. it in walls nearby. You know, like uh, stone walls that went round the park when the park yeah. still had a stone wall round it, and inset into the wall would be these kind of glass shiny lumps of basically glass that they would yeah. uh, they use it to build with, and yeah. it was jagged and sometimes rough, but there's always these beautiful smooth bits like a little slide or a little cave, oh. and we go, it's a fairy slide. <laughs> wow, and the fairies live in there. And you were 18? <laughs> <laughs> Pro- probably. Ju- no, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you 18, were uh, wide-eyed, happy Liverpool children. 18 and worried about, you know, should I go to a unisex hairdresser or not? <laughs> yeah. Because I want a corkscrew perm, but I really haven't got the courage. And me and my friends, <laughs> sorry, just what we were talking about perms, it was that time where all everybody in the planet was getting a perm. And the two of us, we were in sixth form, so we thought it was okay. We both took the same day off school, yeah, ill, yeah. and we came back with permed hair, right. the two of us. A magic cure giving out at the surgery <laughs> this morning, yes. Yeah. Amazing, I yeah. think you're in need of a perm, young lady, yes. <laughs> it worked. I never did get mine. This shows you how I, I was already off the... Um, spectrum rails at that age because yeah <laughs> I went I went to you know I used to go I used to go to the barber at the top of the street who had a book that had two pictures in it Elvis or Tony Curtis and you could have one or the other right that, that was it that was the two cuts he was going to do so at some point at about 15 or 14 I thought I better go to the unisex hairdressers and get myself a feather cut or something you know I, I didn't know what I was going to do and I had a badge I had a badge because I liked Thin Lizzy at the time, right? Mm. So I walked oh, in. Ah, with, with Phil on it. No, I didn't have Phil on it. It was like a sort of mirrored badge with their logo on, right? That was lucky, I imagine. Lucky that Phil Linnett wasn't on there, is it? Right. So I put it on, and I had my little uh, red, no, blue velvet jacket on because I, oh, I nice. thought that was cool with my jeans, right? And I walked in, and the guy's cutting my hair, and he goes, uh, so uh, are you in that band, Thin Lizzy? And I went, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's me, you know. And I was fourteen or fifteen, he must have thought, What an idiot, you know. But it was it was the start. It was the start. I was like, Yeah, people like that, right? So I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna say yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I took the cover of um Low, Bowie's Low into the hairdressers. Oh wow, okay. And I, I got it done, so I was kind of like ginger with a blonde fringe. And um, I'm dark, naturally, so the eyebrows were really not – it wasn't a good look for me. And I went home, and I was living at home. My dad just looked at me, and my mum said, you look like a bloody parrot. Oh. 
Uh, and I and I actually did because I don't have the cutest of noses, and um, the, the the big shock of hair plus my aquiline Roman nose was a little bit paradesque. And so my compromise the next day was go back to the hairdressers and say, "Oh look, just do it all purple." And that was as far as I'd go. Wow! Uh, so I was David Bowie in low for like one evening. Oh my! I remember I remember my first bleaching session. We're very you know, the first time on my own in Liverpool. And I remember it's called Nessalite. It was this, it was basically peroxide, hydrogen peroxide and some kind of toner. And you, sl you slapped it on best you could <laughs> to make sure you didn't miss any, anything on the back. And then waited till your skin started to bubble. And then it went yellow if you were lucky. Yeah. <laughs> if you were lucky, yeah. <laughs> this, go green. this is before I went to Trevor Sorby in Covent Garden. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's the place, right? That's the place. Well, you see, this is that was that's that that was on the distant horizon at that point. Yeah. You know, Covent Garden was on a very distant horizon, oh. and in Covent Garden was Trevor Sorby, and uh, I remember eventually the 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 I suppose that the, the pinnacle of my hairdressing career would be down Trevor Sorby's, and it was always like with a a bag of booze because <laughs> it was there was going to be a party. There was always a party, but you know, it wasn't nothing. Nothing was just a, like, let's go cut a record or let's do it. You know, there was a bag of frascati or something. And I just like make sure that everybody else had enough to drink, and especially me, because mm. it was not always clean, clear sailing. It was like quite painful process. And I'd spend the whole afternoon, though, into the early evening because it started to go dark. So I could mm. venture out with this, you say, cockatoo. It was, it was preened and primped beyond its, you know, its possibilities, and uh, of course the skin was bright red underneath. Well, well, you have to suffer for your art, you know. I get, oh, I did, get I did, I did. Suffered for them like twenty odd years, and <laughs> but also you get a facelift thrown in as well. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm allowing myself to go a little bit, little bit grey and silver there. I mean, when I say allowing, I mean too lazy to do anything about it. But yeah, yeah, I like that. That's like a little insert there. I like that. Yeah, thanks. Okay, then. Yeah. I've got that endorsement. I'll hang on to yeah, it. Yeah, you can go with that. Now I've gone. Now I've gone blonde. I ain't never going back. I know that. You know, I looked. I looked at it when I thought, right, yes, that looks much better. So I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it because it was hell trying to get the black yeah. all the time, yeah. all the time, all the time. You know, um, and the eyebrows are more expressive. Yeah, all exactly. Have dark eyebrows, exactly. So this, yeah. this yes. lightening of the hair makes the eyebrow always did. You know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very much I'm better. You're right. More. So you were talking about. Um, David Bowie and the cover of Lowe. Oh, yeah. So what was it? How old were you when you loved Lowe? Wow. Well, it came out in, came out in 77. Yes. Um, I'm not one of those people who hide my ages. I am delighted to have reached 60. I never thought yes, I would. Yes, congratulations, by was, the way. Thank you very much. Yes. Not because I was so rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. But um, I was always one of these people, you know, when I was an intense Catholic, I'm going off on one here. Yeah. I used to make deals with God. Sorry to yeah. paraphrase Kate there. But I remember being 18 and saying, Dear God, please let me just reach 21. Yeah. And so he or they or whatever, if they're still there, they reach me six, let God, get me up to 60. But you didn't ask me that. So 77, I would have been about what? I was born in 62, 72. I'm terrible at math, 15-ish. 
15-ish. And um, it's too, yeah. it meant the world to me because um, I loved that there was a side of songs and a side of weirdness. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember, you know, the whole, and I don't know if you've done the whole Bowie thing there in Berlin, Budgie, but I was loving the whole Berlin German Hansa by the wall we and the donkey box and yeah. Connie Plank and all yeah. that stuff. We we did we did the, we did the pilgrimage. You did that, yeah. At school, at my school, there was a, you, you went into a year and you had to do either Latin or German, mm. and everybody wanted to do German because Latin was boring. And if you wanted to do German, you had to go and speak to the headmistress about why you wanted to do German. So I had to go in and sit with the headmistress and say. It's where the future of music is. Oh, yeah. And started going on about David Bowie and Connie Plank. Anyway, I got to do German. I didn't realise just how, how much influence German music was having on us in our little little town just sure. outside of Liverpool. Yeah. yeah. I had a friend, quick story, I had a friend who was like a couple of years older. So he'd left school like 14 gone to work in the local glass factory and had a big wedge of money on Friday. He'd always got a big wage packet. And he'd pop down to the record store in town and we'd always wait for Alex to come back and go, what have you got, Alex? And he had like, I've got this Faust album and it was like see-through and Amandul 2, Amandul 2. And and they they couldn't play them. It was like, what was the music? But it it was the whole concept and the whole attitude that was permeating mm. i think that came yeah. across on and low in in right spades acres spades yeah. and acres yeah. yeah there was two two albums in 77 that were groundbreaking for me and and really started me on a particular route one, one was low and the other one was the clash's first album those two albums came out the same year and it's amazing to me you know that like they're vastly different in approach but you know if you look at the the way that the cure went after that you can see where where that that influence comes i know you got a guitar when you were very young was there a singer? Was there somebody? Did you want? Was it singing you wanted to do, or what? What? What, what I, brought you in? I was a shy little kid, and uh, I loved singing, but I thought I could hide behind something. Um, and so, um, a guitar, yeah, and then guitar was too hard. And this is not knocking any bassists, right? Because bass playing is not easy. Only four strings. It's, a, it's what you do with them, isn't it? Um, but, but no, I, I wanted to sing, but I was too shy, and I, so I thought I'd get an instrument. And then um, I was about to say, I don't want to talk about myself too much. <laughs> then I realised what this is all about. Actually, you're, you're now in the middle of my screen, and we're surrounding you, and it's all about you. <laughs> it's all about me. So um, I, uh, oh, yeah. So when I joined my first band, it was by accident. I interviewed them. I interviewed Jean Love Jezebel. And um, they said, can you play bass? And I said, no. And I said, well, could you learn pretty quickly? Because we like you. And I learned in a weekend by listening to Jar Wobble. There you go. Um, And uh, so that's what I did. So I hid behind the bass for a while. um, And then I, I... 
I kind of thought, well, this, this is okay. And it's quite nice, actually. I probably could have had a, a nice life behind a base because as a person, I probably put myself on the worst edge possible being a front person because here I am gabbling away, but I am quite a shrinking violin. But I, I don't know how I managed it, but I did. But I did love singing and I spent my youth harmonising to Beatles records. And do you know what? I know I found harmonies that they didn't put on the record. They probably knew them, but there was probably not the room because of the tracks. I bet you had no uh, man down to a T, didn't you? Like... I did. And eight days a week. Yeah. That's one that's of the best. That's a difficult one. Yeah. So that was it. I uh, I kind of did it despite my misgivings. But of course, you know, Kate Bush comes along. Yeah. And any girl my age right. um, just fantasized that when they grew up, and she was only like three years older than me, they could be Kate Bush. So had a go at that. It's interesting. We were talking to the producer who was the engineer on the first album she produced herself. Oh. And he was like one year younger than Kate was at the time. Oh, so wow. quite quite an opportunity, yes, maybe. Yes. yes. Certainly. We of course we, we, we love to, to to ridicule Kate Bush when she arrived, you know, because we were thinking, Oh no, this can't be possible, no. Because anybody who was having a number one was you know yeah. good fodder for um but there was yeah. you know, you, you just couldn't deny um her her intent and her drive and, and, mm -hmm. and lots of faux pas and lots of dodgy videos later, she arrived with her self-produced album and yeah. Running Up That Hill and the one that we've all heard recently again. You know, she was a, she was a kid, wasn't she? You know, she was a kid. And um, so no. that Andram thing. Do you remember those interviews on, on, on Michael Aspel? Oh, and Delia Smith, the interview with Delia Smith. That's a great one. She's talking about vegetarianism. Like, yeah. well, what she's saying is groundbreaking. Was there any music prior to that? Was like, did you have like Johnny Mitchell in your life or anybody like this? Uh, well, you know, I have a few youngish uncles and I had an uncle who was really into Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and the Eagles. So again, there goes the harmonies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a boy next door. There was no romantic interest because I was about seven. He was about 15. Right. So he was just a mentor and he got me into prog. Um, and I was a, a willing victim. I remember him playing me Nielsen's The Ooh, Point. Yeah. I'm thinking, wow, that's a concept album, and playing the um, Pink Floyd um, and stuff like that. So um, I had this, there was no older brothers and sisters, but the boy next door was really instrumental in saying, listen to this very complex and interesting music, which was fine because, you know, when I, you know, you kind of meld that in with the Osmonds and David Cassidy, and you have an interesting yes. brew. <laughs> good mix good mix there's a voice that stayed with me all the time my sister um and my brother-in-law he came in and he br he introduced the, the house to uh tom paxton weird daddy's taking us to the zoo tomorrow and lady ladies of oh, the yeah. canyon johnny mitchell which was great mm -hmm. and blue um and my sister at the same time i, I just bought a steel eye spans uh, new album and it was called now we are six and it was electric, and they were like a folk band, but, but they discovered. So, and it was a bit like for me, it was a link between rock music and the folk I heard in the pubs around, you know, mm. the, the north of England. And Mad Maddie Pryor's voice 
always stuck with me. The pronunciation, the way she way she wobbled around yeah. the syllables, mm. and uh, and the cheekiness of those old English almost nursery rhyme lyrics, which are a bit risque for me because I was still quite young. Mm. Well, they are a bit. It's like you know when you you're in school and you read. I don't know if you, but we were forced to read Chaucer, and it's like, oh, yeah. that's a bit saucy. Oh, yeah, the Miller's, the Miller's Tale. <laughs> and you hear it in yeah. We did The Wife of Bath, and she was a saucy one. I, I love Kate Bush, of course, but I always think this thing as well. I think Kate Bush was really into Lindsay DePaul. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. And I think she was also into Nusha Fox. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense too. Just yeah. a little, just tiny little, because we've all been into something. Mm. I think she just took tiny nuances of that and then kind of like put it in she her own She would have definitely heard Lindsay DePaul, who was like singer-songwriter. And, uh, yeah. Quite, yeah, it's quite uh, out on her own there in the midst of yeah. female performers that were brought in to add the female vocal to the female image yeah, was, yeah. was necessary something that doesn't really exist so much in in america you know like the the folk rock aspect ah, yeah. in england was more more like it had psychedelia in it as well i mean you think i'm thinking about people like you know not necessarily folky but they they did have some of that in it like john martin you know later on and it was like it's it's there's some psychedelic stuff going on some dub you know, so all kinds of things mixed in together. And, you know, even if you don't think, oh, well, you know, that's that's old music and we don't like it, you know, because that's what happened at 77. We, we threw everything out with the bath, baby out with the bathwater. Um, it still influenced us. You know, we still had stuff in there that well, came through. A, a, big, you know? a big export from Britain was uh, Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull. Right, right. And they took America by storm and everybody was like, yeah. Led Zeppelin were going like, who are these guys? Why is this guy so smart? You know, because Ian Anderson was an amazing composer, I, I think. Yeah. And he could stand on one leg and play that bloody flute. And, right. and he was yes. pretty <laughs> straggly and not not pretty. Yeah. Not, not certainly no. wasn't Mark Bowen. No, he wasn't. And, you know, no, neither wasn't. were the Strobs or Lindisfarne no. or, you know, and they were singing like... I saw, you know, um, sorry to jump in, I did see Jethro Tull play live once. Right, and it, and it was in the it was in the eighties, and it was something like Hammersmith Odeon. Yeah, and they were the loudest loudest band I've ever seen. And um, wow, they were taking the mic out of oh god, who was it? Metallica. Okay. They had a great big backdrop, um, and it said "thick as a brick." And it was a very very kind of brave and um, kind of confrontational thing to be doing at the time. But God, were they loud! Thick as a brick. That was the album that that broke them in America. I, I think it was. Yeah, I know right. Stand Up did it. See, I, I'm doing my kind of uh, <laughs> my nerdy histori- history thing now. But I did read there's, there's moments, I think, Stand Up, something happened in my life where that album just kind of made sense of the, not, the things, nothing that made sense. and But the songs well, have stayed with me. Um, and, and, you know, and can still make me cry just listening to the intro of the the way we were i think it was called and it's just how I mean, when music is that powerful and stays that powerful i i i afraid yeah. i can't deny it and um it was i had to deny it when punk came along i had to hide the jethro Tull and the led zeppelin but <laughs> we we yeah. all did we we had all had to hide the lamb 
the lamb was under my arm. You know, gen, gen, Genesis nursery album, crimes, yeah. uh, selling England by the pound. Oh, that had to go. Had, had yeah. Yeah. I sold a lot of mine in Matthew Street in Liverpool to oh. get money for for booze or food that week, and I sold yeah. a lot of vinyl. And the guys yeah. were going, "Budgie," I think I was even called Budgie at that point. Mm. Saying, "Can you just? We can't give you any money for these, but." I said, I need whatever you can give me. And I had like, living in the past, Jethro, till it was a double album with a booklet yeah. and everything. And I was like, oh, and that, that wow. Remember the record and tape exchange that they had down in London, the record and tape exchange? Oh yeah. You know, it sounds like you got off a little bit lightly in Matthew Street because they dragged you through broken glass, you know, psychologically to sell your record to them. It, they looked at you like you would it was like we'll give you 20p yeah. um wow 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 so the you know it all comes full circle though because the guitarist what was the guitarist in jethro tell uh barry Morbalo, is that was it barry Morbalo was eventually yeah he, he he's been the yeah. longest yeah he, he lived up the hill from me when i lived in devon oh lovely that was he was the next house along hey baby he talked like that did he I don't know because I never got an invitation to his house, which I thought was, you know, little, little uncharitable since we're, you know, musicians. No, like, how how was it going, Flower? Yeah, I was, that's right, Flower. Yeah, he was. Um, no, Charlie Watts was a bit more forthcoming. He lived around the corner as well, so he was he was nicer. But um, never heard from Mr. Barlow. So no. you know, so that's a funny thing. I mean, I I don't suppose I really have to like them you know I, I just couldn't deny them and mm. that was the thing certainly with Ian Anderson you know the, it was a little like too smart mm. you know in some of the, the quips and the dialogue and so when when we kind of started making music ourselves it was really without all that peripheral mm. cleverness that, yeah. that had gone before us but we had we had heroes but we 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 had different idea of what the role model should be at by that point. So, when was it that you really decided? I mean, it was Gene loves Jezebel, but then you decided I can do something myself, much better, right? And you're gonna well, do that. I, I, no, do you know what? Not better, to be honest. Um. I left them because, I mean, they're a lovely bunch of people, but the dynamic was odd because it was fronted by twins. So, you know, I don't know if you experience any sibling difficulties. I certainly have in my life. But to have a twin is a, you know. So so I kind of left just because it was difficult. But then, yeah, I had my own thing. Right. And then, you know, if we're talking about templates, um, you know, obviously you chaps were part of my template of doing something better or more interesting. So right. all my lofty talk about, you know, Kate Bush and Pink Floyd and David Bowie, you know, when I was at that point, and I heard Rachel yeah. Slowdive, who seems to be a really lovely person, I've had a few emails with her, I, I heard her talking similarly about this. Uh, but, you know, we were listening, well, I was listening to, to you two, and I was listening to the, 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 the those who came after you, like um, Cocteau Twins, and also Lowell, the band that you're familiar with, and also The Trees. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and that was my kind of, ooh, I want to sound like them. Oh, yeah. And I remember when we first when we first had our first couple of singles out, people were going, 
Oh, well, you just sound like Susan the Banshees, don't you? Go, no, no, we don't. We don't. No, not, not at all, Mum. With chocolate around my mouth. No, we don't. <laughs> um, but that was my, it was like, that's kind of, that was our blueprint. Um, and it was, you were talking about this wonderful guy the other week, John McGeer. And um, mm. I'm a fan of yeah. all the bands that he's ever been in. And um, his guitar sound was something that, um, we just needed to latch yeah. on to, uh, as yeah. did many, many other people. Yeah. Yeah. Can't underestimate John. It, it's, he's a, he was a natural player. John had more, he brought so much to the table mm. uh, and, and so much that he, he didn't even probably expect he was going to bring. Mm. You know, John went in the studio would suddenly like, oh, look, there's a, a Hammond organ or something or a Farthy and just sit there and go, da, 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 boom, boom, mm. and he, he just chomp something out and yeah or we need saxophone john can play saxophone right, okay. uh, recorder you know and these were like key instruments in the tracks you know yeah it's very useful to have somebody like mm. that in the band for the cure it was it was pearl torson yeah. you know yeah. because pearl is the same thing you gave pearl a saxophone he'd be playing it in 10 minutes and you're like if how do you know the saxophone? Well, I just played it. Just played you know? it. It's like it's like you know, it's the sort of person you want to brick his fingers. You know, like no, no. But he was, he was it, any instrument you give it to him, he could play something on it in a minute. Yeah, you know? yeah I'm sure Pearl could as well. It was like uh, Little Wing, Jimi Hendrix, or something. You know. Yeah. And I, I think by the and by the time John had actually left the band, I'd finally got that drum beat down. You know, the intro that I forget his name. Uh, anyway, you know the drummer with uh, Jimi Hendrix experience, Mitch Mitchell. M- Mitch, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the recorder um, there because the the track Green Fingers, because um, yes, the one that's I was the one you were talking about. about yeah. Because I've been yeah. a bit of a inverted commas air things here academic of late. Um, right. I've been asked to write a chapter for this book, but it's the Rutledge Guide to Folk Horror. Again, not out till next year or the year after, whatever these right. things are. And I've been talking about folk horror's presence in music, whether accidental or not. Okay. And um, the lyrics of that song really fitted into what I was talking about, this kind of, there's a whole idea in the horror genre of of plant horror. Yes, plant horror. Um, and uh, the green fingers thing and the planting of the finger and stuff like that. And uh, I went down this rabbit hole when I was when I was looking into that, and then ended up researching about what happens with mushrooms under the ground. And then too late for the chapter. Bjork's done some album all about mushrooms or whatever it is. Uh, I wish I'd actually thought this out. It's, it's beginning to sound like some bloke in a pub. It's about mushrooms, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and and then that, there's that Peter Gabriel album uh, when the lead track was digging in the dirt, yeah. and the and the video was all like mushrooms mm. in quick time, yeah. kind of rowing like a Philip Greenaway yeah. film or something. I was looking at your uh, site, uh, Julianne, and I think it was maybe your Twitter feed or Instagram or something. And and Terry was on there, Terry Hall. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And and I had no idea. 
Yeah. And, and it's it's so it's just a few days ago. Yeah. Yes. And we had Horace on here a few oh, few months back. Right. So Horace made the announcement, I think. Yeah. But I just thought, what? So I immediately start to look at my one of my favourite songs is Our Lips Are Sealed. Mm, yeah, it's a beautiful song. Both versions, yeah. Both versions. And and then I look at Fun Boy 3, having done the specials already and taken a break and then started at Fun Boy 3 with Neville and, 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 and I always forget his name, Neville. Linville. Linville, yeah. And an old friend of ours, um, Caroline Lavelle on cello with a huge pile of hair on top. And June on drums, and this band of really understated women, just lovely, all yeah. just really underplaying mm-hmm. in many ways. And I thought, was June um, from the Modettes? Yes, is that, right. Is that who I'm thinking of? Yeah, Modettes yeah. are great. Looks a bit yeah. like June Whitfield with a blonde <laughs> bob. We definitely right. had Caroline Lavelle on one of our songs. She is the cellist. Yes, Caroline. Caroline, cellist with an attitude. <laughs> And leopard skin. Oh, a, a fake, of course. Fake, of course. There was a close. There was there was even a close up on the clip I was watching. It's like Caroline's boot, you know, the heel <laughs> dug in next to the spike of the cello. There's the stiletto. Oh I thought, wow, yes, that's good. Um, it was just seemed so natural and so easy to like, and he was like the antithesis of. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm from Coventry, he's from Coventry, and I have yeah. to admit that when, when the two-tone and scar thing happened, um, I appreciated it, but um, in my shallowness, rather than get into the politics of it, of course the rock against racism was important to all of us, but I would kind of shimmy off to Birmingham to be a new romantic. That's where I kind of went out clubbing when I was too young to go clubbing. Right, to Barbarella's. <laughs> To the rum runner and Barbarella's yeah. and all that stuff. And the rum runner, blimey, there's a name to conjure right. with. Right, and uh, and um, but um, you know the thing is, reading some of the eulogies that have come out um, for Terry Hall, and they're yeah. very entwined with what it is like to grow up in in that kind of town. That right. Well, what was it like? It was very violent. Um, it was very violent. Yeah. It was the kind of there was a, a skinhead culture that was there was the music skinheads, which was different. But then they were just kind of like very aggressive gangs of people wandering around the town after dark. It, yeah. it wasn't a nice place, and um, right. it's a funny town in that it's a bit of a concrete jungle with a bit of a medieval part. Um, Coventry was like the um, uh, Vauxhall car factory the car factories yeah and as i think linville said it was like you know so they needed cheap labor and so they really wheeled busting people yes. from anywhere yeah they did uh, you know. real, yeah so the community was like thrown together around mm-hmm. the factory and we invited um the windrush generation in to come drive our buses yeah and then people decided they didn't like the look of them. And, uh, you know, Coventry became a bit of a boiling point, right. you know, with um, when the whole Thatcher thing was happening. And I think they documented it so brilliantly. And I think that Ghost Town, I mean, I've seen uh, an interview with Terry Hall where he's talked about it, it's about any of those towns that were dying right. sure. at that time. It just happened. They just happened to be from one where they saw it happening in front of their eyes. I mean, yeah. I have, to, I have to admit, I'm fond of my hometown, but you know, not knocking anyone who still who stayed there. But I, I couldn't wait to get out because I felt it folding in on us, you know.
Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.